you've got to have something in your life that absolutely burns in your soul, something that, that you are absolutely passionate about. If you can find that passion also in the context of your vocation, you are more blessed than almost anyone on earth. One of the things we love doing at Stay Forth Designs is creating learning environments. And many of these environments will have dinners, coffee, conversations, but discussions about real things that matter. And one of our favorite environments is to put a mentor leader who's been there, who's walked many of the struggles that we're facing, has gone the distance together with young kingdom leaders. And in this episode, we want to let you into a discussion that we hosted in my hometown, Colorado Springs. Wes Stafford led Compassion International for 20 years as its president, served there for 43 years, and is an incredible man of God, a mentor to me, and one of those kingdom leaders that if you've been around in the nonprofit space, you've somehow been impacted by Wes. Wes opens up his heart to a group of young, hungry leaders. He talks about integrity in leadership. He talks about the things that wear us down. He talks a little bit about succession. He talks about the things that we need to do if we want to go the distance in leadership. This is one of those episodes you're not going to want to listen to on 1.5 speed. Slow down, take some notes. Wes was just dropping wisdom bombs on us in the room. This is an amazing conversation. Really listen in, maybe share this with a friend, maybe listen to this as a leadership team. It's really rare for us to be able to learn from leaders who are finishing well and you can just hear the passion in his voice. Wes is so passionate. And one of my favorite things that he says is that every leader needs a cause that brings them to tears in 30 seconds or less. And let me just say, there were tears in the room during this one. What an incredible conversation with a mentor of mine, Compassion International's President Emeritus and an incredible leader, Wes Stafford. Wes, thanks for your time. Yeah. Love this guy. I love, what he, I love who he is. I love uh, what he does. And I love uh, getting invited to uh, little gatherings like this. I think this is the second time now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just getting to dip into other people's lives a little bit for, for a short span of time. Share a bit of, uh, you know, who I am and, and what, uh, what I've done. So um, this is one of these moments. If I had all the money in the world and could be anywhere else, I wouldn't. I would be, I would be right here. I think what we're doing here is really important. I, um, most of everything I know uh, that really is true and valuable about leadership, I didn't learn in the classroom. Uh, I learned by talking to other leaders who were along the journey. Most of them, in, in my experience, were, were a jump ahead. We always would like to know what's the next chapter going to be like. So I'm, uh, I'm happy to uh, to share with you uh, who I am and where I've come from. Uh, I have been with Compassion International uh, for 43 years. I joined Compassion back in 1977 uh, when it was a tiny little ministry in Chicago. We were about the size of a 7-Eleven store, our office. We had about 20, 25 uh, staff. 
Um, it was uh, it was a tiny little place. It was 25 years old by the time I came along, uh, but it had struggled to to uh, to to get any real traction uh, at that time. Um, I joined it not because it was big or it was great, but I could see in it the seeds of greatness. It had the the characteristics uh, and the focus that matched my heart, what I thought needed to be happening in the world. It was focused on children. It was focused on poverty. It was focused on the church. It was focused on bridging God's people across the world. And it was focused on releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. So when I came along 43 years ago, if it hadn't already existed, I would have had to have been its founder. Instead, I just got in there and, um, and just uh, did everything in my power over these years uh, to make it as, as good a ministry as it possibly could. 16 years of just striving all through the place, uh, started off in the program in Haiti, uh, various positions until uh, after 16 years of being a part of it, I was made the president back in 1993. Uh, we had a, by that time, we had grown from 25,000 sponsored children to 180,000 sponsored children. And um, I served as its president for, uh, for 20 years, uh, retired, if you will, uh, six uh, years ago. Had the, uh, I, I give you this background because it might help you wonder, so what, what, what value might this guy add to, to my journey? Uh, I watched it grow, had a front row seat. Uh, from uh, 25,000 sponsored children to today, two million uh, sponsored children, and so I know uh, I know what it is uh, with, with to be a part of a tiny little struggling uh, nonprofit organization, and by the time uh, we left, it is now the eighth largest nonprofit in America, and so I've uh, I've been able to watch this happen, obviously. Uh, People often ask, uh, so how, how, how could this exponential growth have happened in that ministry? My answer is, well, it was, it was great leadership, really. <laughs> <laughs> of course. It was, uh, it was actually God's sense of humor, I think. Uh, I think it's that God honors those who honor him. And I watched this little place when we had no idea where we were going or that it would ever be of any big influence in the world and uh, stayed focused on Christ, made numerous, and we can talk about it for you, but numerous deliberate decisions to not wander away from being centered on Christ and working through the local church. But when you pick and put those together, I think, uh, I think it's very close to God's heart. Can you share one or two of those? Because those have been really powerful for me. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know where you are in your... And, and you know, promoting your organization or marketing your organization. But uh, in the probably about 1982, 83, uh, I went from running the, the program in Haiti. I used to go crashing across that place in my Land Rover. I was putting in wells, I was building roads, and I was like, this is great. No, I don't work for anybody, and nobody answers to me. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. Uh, only, to, uh, only to get pulled into the the bigger organization. And um, so for a span of eight years, I was in charge 
of uh, Compassion's growth. So all of its marketing, all of its video, its communications, its media stuff. Without a great background in that, uh, the first thing I did was uh, bring in some consultants to take a look at our materials, to look at our strategy, uh, our, uh, a couple of television shows and a few things like this. I said, tell, tell me what our strengths are, tell me what you think we need to do. And we had a, a, whole, a leadership team of about this size and these guys studied all of our stuff and then they came back with their report and the report said this, essentially. They said, number one, you've got the best name in the business, compassion. Who doesn't want to be a part of something called compassion? Uh, but you've got your materials riddled with this Jesus stuff. And not everybody who cares to be compassionate cares about Jesus. So every time you put that Jesus in there, you cut your market in half. So our advice is really push the name compassion, downsell the Jesus part, and you'll watch you know, phenomenal growth. You'll double the size of your, of your marketplace. And we dismissed them, and I looked at our team, and I said, well, what'd you hear? And they were like, no, no, never no. How can we say no now and make sure that it's always no? And we were all young. We were in our 30s. And... Um, and so we determined right then and there that we were going to keep this organization from losing its way. And uh, I know organizations, I could, uh, I, I can name many organizations that went from Christian to secular. I can't think of one that went secular to Christian. Some of our greatest universities, you know, were pastoral training places uh, initially. So what we did is uh, that's where we changed our, it was a marketing logo at the beginning. We, we said, you know, there's going to be no mistake about this. This is about releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. We went back and we convinced the board to rewrite the mission statement. Uh, we rewrote the bylaws. Our board said, you know what, we are not going to wander away from Christ. And so we're going to make it that any of these Christ-focused uh, elements of us cannot be changed without a unanimous vote of the board in three consecutive meetings. In other words, the Holy Spirit you know, has to go on a year-long sabbatical, I don't know, for this organization to, to wander away. And you can't have one guy at one board meeting who's, you know, highly intelligent or got amazing credentials who can give an impassioned speech about why we're holding ourselves back, focused on Christ, and have the whole place turn around. And uh, one of my best uh, CEO buddies uh, was running a... Uh, a uh, micro-enterprise ministry. So loans and helping people go forward on a socioeconomic strata. And it was a Christian organization, but the bigger they got with their micro-loans, the more they became sort of corporate and the more they filled their board up with banking experts. And, uh, and he was telling me, his name is Chris, he was telling me, so uh, we had one board meeting and they decided to review qualifications for board membership. And one of the things it said was, active, committed Christian. And they got into the debate and they said, well, active, what do we mean by that? That's a little bit ambiguous. I mean, do, we, do they have to be you know, going to Wednesday night permitting services as well as Sunday services? And they said, you know what, that's, that, that's vague. 
So not active, committed. And then the lawyers spoke up. Who do we think we are to judge another person's commitment? Do you realize the liability we put ourselves under that? Get rid of that. And then they came to, uh, in the same meeting, they came to Christian. And it came, you know, that, that's starting to get a little ambiguous. What do we mean by that? And do we really want to fight the battle of defining that all along the way? And in one meeting, they gave up active, committed Christian. And my CEO friend stood up and he said, then I have nothing left in common with this ministry. And he resigned. Wow. So I have seen that in the course of a single meeting, an organization can lose its way. Wow. We had consultants that if all we were committed, and I was very insecure, uh, especially in the marketing area, and I was like, the reason I brought these guys in is we got to turn this thing around. It needs to grow. And, and uh, so there was a lot of pressure to, uh, you know, to, to migrate on to bigger and better. Uh, so I know that in very short spans of time, an organization can lose its uh, identity, lose its passion. And an organization that, uh, that wanders away from its faith uh, ultimately forgets its faith and, in my experience, uh, unravels. So that was one of the lessons I learned. Now, uh, Compassion is as committed to Christ as it was, founded by a pastor evangelist back in Chicago uh, who ministered to the troops in, in uh, South Korea. We're as committed to that. We will not touch the life of any one of our two million children except through the little local church. So it's 7,500 churches in 25 countries, all of them implementing Compassion's program, if you will, in the context of, uh, of their church. We went from 25 staff. It was so funny. We, 25 staff. We had six parking spaces in Chicago. Uh, and they were by the dumpster out, out behind our building. Only the muckety-mucks leaders had their own parking space. You know, the rest of us uh, parked in the neighborhood all behind Compassion. And every two hours, we would get up and move our cars so that the neighborhood wouldn't hate Compassion. But what they didn't know is it was a Compassion car pulling out, and it was a Compassion car pulling right in behind me. We just had this rotating parking lot. But I, I watched it, you know, very, very small, uh, but, but passionate uh, to, to where it is now. And we never lost the focus on Jesus Christ. I can tell you with absolute certainty that today, in the course of this day around the world, uh, 500 children will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior in the context of Compassion's ministry. At the knee of their pastor or in a Sunday school classroom under a mango tree somewhere. We know that because we track that. It's the bottom line of what we're... If we could do nothing else for children in poverty, we would bring them to a relationship with their Heavenly Father. And so uh, it happens every day of the year. Happened yesterday, will happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Now the task in our real bottom line is uh, child discipleship. Mm -hmm. And so now we are helping children uh, leave the confines of poverty behind and uh, be coached and guided to reach their full God-given potential. A million graduates now, two million in the program right now. Mm -hmm. Each child spends at least eight hours a week in that little local church context. Uh, that's where they go after school, they get help with their, with their homework. Uh, 
they're, they're fed. These are the poorest of the poor. They, most of the kids' families make less than $2 a day. And Compassion maintains a low profile, uh, no Compassion t-shirts, no Compassion on our vehicles, uh, because if anybody is going to get gratitude, uh, we want it to be that little local church, not Compassion, uh, that little local pastor. And eventually we want the people of the community to say, what is it with you Christians? The, the Buddhists and the Muslims, the Hindus are not like this. What is it about you that loves my child? And it gives the church the freedom to say, well, it's really not about us at all. It's all about Jesus Christ. All of them who actually touch the lives of the children, if they were all on staff, it would be an organization of 60,000 employees. They are all part of that little local church. Every child, uh, every, every worker that the child sees, loving them, encouraging them, uh, praying with them, is someone from their own community, someone from their own church. Mm. So you don't get a little Haitian kid saying, if only I was white, things would work well. Mm. We're like, no, everyone around you is Haitian, just mm. like you, lives in a house just like you. Mm. And if you see what's happened in their lives, Christ has transformed it, and he can do the same thing for you. If Wes is one thing, he is passionate. And I just, I love it. I love that, Wes. I tell you what, um, what, I, what I think, I am, I am so blessed. I think it is very likely that I, were I not leading compassion, I would have been a pretty pathetic leader. I think I would have been a horrible banker. Uh, uh, what I have learned is if is that everybody needs a cause. You've got to have something in your life that absolutely burns in your soul, something that, that you are absolutely passionate about. If you can find that passion also in the context of your vocation, you are more blessed than almost anyone on earth. And I'm, I'm one of those. This is exactly what I know I was knit in my mama's womb to do. And I feel so fortunate that I found my way to this little storefront in Chicago that was worthy of, uh, of, of really my whole life, my whole, my, my whole focus, because it just rang so true. And so I maintain that in any vocation, if you look carefully enough, there is a cause, there is a sizzle in the middle of that uh, that you can capture. If I was a used car salesman, I think I could be really excited about that because you're, you're helping people who can't afford a brand new car. Uh, they need the best car they can get because they want their family safe and they want their family able to get to activities so that they can grow. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get them the best possible car for the lowest possible price because I care about them and their life. Well, if you can find passion, I think, in a used car salesman, you can probably find it in just about anything if you stop and ponder. And I maintain, if you do not have such a cause, um, you're not fully alive. And uh, I, I beg people, don't, don't live like that. We don't have time on this little planet. This is a campsite. This is not home. Don't get comfortable here. Don't, don't spend your time playing the game like it's being played down. It's not all about money. Pour, pour yourself into it and uh, be fully alive. We don't have time for us to be stuck in second gear. We simply don't. 
one of the frustrations with uh, with young people today is they just don't have anything uh, that's meaningful and purposeful. They're like, yeah. what what is what is out there? I'm going to speak at a high school in in uh, Wheaton uh, next week, and uh, and I know where they are. I know how frustrating it is to say, you know what, I I don't know if the rest of my life is going to be great or or, or not. Uh, and I'm like, well. We live in an upside-down world, those of us following Christ. It's a, the kingdom that we belong to is very different than the kingdom of this world. In fact, everything is backwards. Everything is upside-down. Uh, you know, the first are last. If we could understand that in the context of leadership, it would change everything. You know, the weak are strong. Uh, you know, I maintain the poor are often the rich. And uh, I maintain, in, in my context, the little are, in fact, the big. And beauty is on the inside, not the outside. And victory is, comes from surrender. I mean, if we, if we march to the beat of the kingdom of God, uh, we do live in this context, but we see everything differently. We feel differently about it. We act differently. We, so we're, you know, we're told, yes, you, you belong to this world. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and ultimately glorify your, your Father in heaven. But we're also told, so be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think differently than the people around you. And if you live out your Christian values in the context of business or ministry or nonprofit, whatever, um, you will ultimately... Uh, excel. People will finally come to you and say, what is it? What, what is it that gives you that extra tank of, of gas? Why do you care so much? And it gives you a chance to maybe lift them up a little bit. Also may give you a chance to say, well, it's not about me. It's about Christ. You want to talk about that ever? Uh, it wasn't just 2,000 years ago, you know. So, uh, I was, I'm blessed, and I'll, I'll tell you quickly, I, I'm blessed because I found, uh, I found a tiny little ministry with seeds of greatness in it that I could throw my life into. And now, 43 years later, I have not looked back. I'll tell you just in a nutshell. Shall I tell them a little of where I came from? Now? Oh, please do. Start, start with Little Wes. Why? Um, yeah, like, we we got to start with real Little West because I think, uh, I think my passion and my calling uh, came while I was being knit in my mama's womb uh, by God himself. <laughs> the way I think it happened, I think the angels gathered around and were full of opinions. You know, I would do this or I would do that, I would do this. But finally when I was born, I think they gathered around they said, <laughs> you know, he's, he's cute as a button, we'll give you that. But he's not a rocket scientist. So we're going to have to make it real clear what he's to do with his life. And so I was born to Ken and Marge Stafford. These were Denver kids um, who, uh, Ken was a shy farm boy uh, in Wheat Ridge. And Marge was the outgoing cheerleader at West High School. As far apart socially as the two of them could ever be, their lives would never have crossed if they didn't both go to Judson Memorial Baptist Church up there on Mississippi. And um, <clears throat> it was, as you can tell by the name, it was a mission-minded church. And uh, 
So they heard all these war stories, these missionaries, there were always a stream of missionaries coming through, and they were telling stories of Africa, and they would roll out their, you know, 20-foot snake skin and talk about knocking scorpions out of their boots. And uh, as they got to be high schoolers, they were sweethearts. And uh, they used to nudge each other in the back row of the church as far from that missionary guy as they could get and say, not us, Mm -mm, we're not doing that. And they used to pray when they could see that they were moving toward marriage, Lord, please do not call us to be missionaries. (laughs) And if you do, please not Africa. (laughs) And so I was born to Ken and Marge Stafford who were missionaries to Africa. (laughs) And it was not just Africa, but it was the Ivory Coast of West Africa, the Sahara Desert is where we, uh, where, where really I spent my whole childhood till I was 15 years old. Um, way out there, 120 degrees was a typical day out there. It was hot, it was dusty. We had no electricity, not so much as a fan. We had no, uh, no refrigerator. Um, the running water was me between the house and the well, <laughs> back and forth with a, with a bucket. <coughs> Grew up in uh, in this tiny, a typical missionary kid. I spoke four languages every day, but none of them very well. You know, two African languages, English and French. Uh, I was just one of the uh, one of the village boys. I had a slingshot around my neck at all times. Deadly accurate. It's good to be good at something. It's the only thing I'm really good at. If I can see it, I can pretty well put a rock in it. Um, grew up in a village that had a the value. It wasn't just a proverb on the wall. It takes the whole village to raise the children. And so every child in that village belonged to every grown-up. And I got to experience a society where children actually matter and that parents were committed uh, to them. Um, my sister and I were the only white children for a hundred miles in any direction. And uh, it didn't matter to the wonderful people of my village, Nyele was the name of our little town. Uh, I was just one of the children. Didn't matter what color my epidermis was. Uh, they, they loved on me. I never fell down as a little boy in the village without some African woman, you know, swooping in, picking me up, drying my tears, you know, sending me on my way. Didn't get away with a lot of mischief because all these grown-ups thought I was their kid. Uh, But I stood out just a little bit. Hey friends, these are interesting days we are navigating. Here, whether you are a church leader, a nonprofit leader, or a business leader, we know there's a lot going on in your mind and heart right now. And one of the things that we want to remind you of is that in the midst of this crisis, you need to stay healthy. You need to continue to lead your family, continue to lead your organization or your team. And ultimately, you can't be around screens all the time. So we hope that you're taking a weekend. We hope that you are building in time for Sabbath. But we also want to make sure that you are growing as a healthy leader. We are doing spring cohorts one male and one co-ed cohort to help you get healthy and reach more impact. We realize on the other side of this, we're going to have a lot of unhealthy leaders, but some of you want to recover your passion for work. You want to get your evenings and weekends back. You want to find practical solutions and you feel stuck right now. So we would love for you to consider jumping into our cohort. Those start in early April. So those are coming up 
and we've got some slots available. We'd love for you to consider jumping into one of our healthy leader cohorts. We want you to get healthy, to stay healthy, and continue to lead healthy for the long haul. Go ahead and go to stayforth.com backslash coaching. That's stayforth.com backslash coaching to check out our spring cohorts. We would love to have you jump into one of those. I remember the chief of our village one time, we used to gather every evening around the campfire, and uh, that's where we told stories and danced and everything else. Uh, and it was kind of like the evening news, and the chief would share wisdom with us. But I remember one time he said, I'm noticing that the goats are a little skinny this year, and it's not because we're in a drought. It's because the little boys are chasing them all around the village. <laughs> and he said, in all the swirling dust, I can't tell you who all the culprits are, but I do know this the little white boy right there. He's one of them. <laughs> so I literally, from the time I was five years old, I used to pray every night, dear Lord, please, uh, when I wake up in the morning, let my skin be black like all of my friends. And it'd be the first thing I would check. I would throw my sheet off. Still white. <laughs> they loved on me. I tell people everything I needed to know to lead Compassion's worldwide ministry eventually. I learned from the poor in, the, in that little village. So I learned what they taught their kids. I learned how to hunt, learned how to fish, uh, learned how to work uh, agriculture. By the time I was 15, I was a fully trained peasant farmer who could have raised his family on the Sahara Desert. But more importantly, they taught me their values. They shaped my heart, my spirit. I learned the things that leaders really need to know. I learned about love. The more of it you give away, the more of it you get. You can't lead something without actually loving your people. Uh, I learned about joy. The joy is not dictated by circumstances. It's, uh, it's a decision you make about how you're going to go through circumstances. I learned about hope from the poor. I learned about generosity. The worst thing you could be in my village was selfish. Uh, the cruelest thing you could have done to me would have been to give me two pieces of candy. Because I'd have looked at them in my hand and said, well, you probably meant one for me, but surely not both. Now what am I going to do? All of these friends and one piece of candy. The worst thing you could do in my village where I grew up was withhold from your brother in his time of need. And people don't understand that about the poor. They think, man, they don't have much, so they must be pretty stingy, holding it pretty tight. No, they're the most generous people yeah, in the right. world. They will humble you. saw it in Nicaragua. Right. Yeah. I learned if God made you brave, it's not for you. It's for those who are frightened around you. And if he made you strong, it's not for you to get ahead. It's for you to be there for those who are weak. So this was the context until I was 15 years old of where I grew up. These remarkable people, when I think of the poor... I do not even subtly think downward. I think upward. Mm. And I tell our worldwide staff, you need to earn the right to even be around them. Mm. And when you're around them, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and you should use them in about that proportion. Mm -hmm. Twice as much listening to the poor as talking uh, to the poor. Uh, Wes, can you talk about how death shaped you, how you experienced death as a child? Death was everywhere. We were, we were poor. There's no question. With all of the values and the courage and the love that was going on, we were desperately poor. And we were vulnerable to everything that could, um, everything that could go wrong. I mean, we needed rain, and we couldn't control it. We had no money for irrigation, so it had to rain. Uh, we needed pesticides, but we didn't have any, so the 
you know, the, the, the insects couldn't destroy our crops. Uh, we didn't have money for fertilizer. We didn't have money for quality seed. Uh, so we walked a tightrope. Everything had to work or, or people starved. And poverty was, was very much uh, a reality in which we lived. Um, death was all around us. I, I lost in the span of two weeks one time to a uh, epidemic of uh, measles. Measles swept into our village. And one out of every four of the kids in, our, in the village, my dear buddies, died of measles because we were, we were weak. The year before, we'd had a locust plague that had eaten our entire harvest right the night before we were har ready to harvest our corn. In came this black cloud, and we thought it was a dust storm, but it turned out it was grasshoppers, and they were on the ground for two hours. We beat them with whatever we could beat them to get them to leave, but when they left, everything that was green was gone. So the migrating animals that we hunted, they moved on. The swamp dried up. We had no, no harvest for a year. The year before the measles, uh, all we ate was bugs. Pictures of me as a little guy. I'm as skinny as a rail. Uh, we ate uh, termites for a year. So when measles hit, we were, we were vulnerable. We were weak. Um, I remember running to my father uh, in tears over... Um, the deaths going on all around me, you know, and we buried them the same day they died. We had no way to embalm them, no electricity, no refrigeration. So they died in my arms, and that night the village gathered around the fire to celebrate their life, and I cried myself to sleep hundreds of nights as a little guy. I would lie on my back, my eyes would fill with tears, and it would spill down into my ears spill onto my pillow, I would drift to sleep. But a few days later, it was more. And I thought this is how the world is. I saw it in the animal kingdom. You know, the young and the old are vulnerable. And so I thought this is how it happens everywhere in the world. This measles thing was a powerful thing because when I, after a few weeks of, of death all around me, I ran to my father. Uh, he was translating scripture. Uh, he put the Senefu language in the writing and he was translating scripture. And I said, Papa, when do you think it'll be my turn? And I'll never forget this. He said, your turn for what, Wes? And I said, to die, Daddy. All my friends are dying. And uh, I think maybe I'm going to die soon, too. Do you know when and how? And he said, roll up your sleeve, son. And uh, he said, those little scratches on your arm, those are called vaccinations. You got those in America before you came here so that you wouldn't get this disease. And I will never forget. It was one of, I've written a book called Just a Minute. There are individual minutes that define you and shape the whole. And this was one of them. Because when he said, you don't have to worry, you've got scratches on your arm. I will never forget. I was nine years old. His face went blurry in my tears. And I said, Papa, that's not fair. Why don't all my friends have scratches on their arms? It was an epiphany that the world is not a fair place. And I somehow landed on the lucky side, apparently. By the time I was 15 and came to America to live, half of all my little buddies had died. And I learned when I got to America, I'll tell you this part quickly. I got to America, the first place I saw was New York City. Climbed off the boat, literally, in the, at, the, at the pier in New York City, uh, straight from this desert village. And uh, here's New York with these massive big things, buildings and all. People are walking around with big brown paper bags. And uh, being a pretty darn good hunter, I look inside, it's food. 
So I backtracked them. Where's this coming from? <laughs> and at age 15, I came to my first grocery store. And I walked inside up and down these aisles. And it hit me. There's plenty of food. Nobody, nobody should have starved. Next door was a pharmacy hooked on. And I went in there in, in my broken English. I said, what, what's all this? And he said, well, mostly medicine. And I said with trembling heart, you have vaccination? And he says, yeah, we do. We don't sell it to little guys like you, uh, but we have it in the freezers in the back. We sell it to clinics, to doctors, plenty. And it hit me. There's plenty of food and there's plenty of medicine. None of this needed to happen. And I went out in front and I sat down on the curb in this Manhattan, my first day in America. And I watched people walking by with fancy shoes and watches and purses and all. And uh, I was like, what is wrong with you people? You have all of this and you don't care. And I just burst into tears and I probably cried and sobbed on the streets of New York for probably an hour, two hours. New York City, nobody even stopped. You know, are you, are you okay, little guy? I ran out of tears. And I, got, I entered a rage that lasted all through my high school years. I was just angry at America, brokenhearted at, at my childhood, uh, until I had lived in America through high school and on, on into college. And by that time, I had gotten to know Americans. And I came to realize the issue isn't that they don't care. The issue is they don't know. Mm -hmm. And when they know, they really, really care. They might be the most generous people in the world. And I realize now I have lived at both ends of this bridge. I know these little children in the village. And I know these people over here. Truth is, they need each other, what each other has. These guys got a little money in their pocket. But oh, they needed love and they need joy and they need hope, mm -hmm. which is what these people have. But these people don't have any money, so they can't feed their children. Then I realized what needs to happen in this world is we need to bridge these two things. And I thought, all right, there are not very many people who know both ends of this bridge, but I do. And so I'm going to have to be a bridge. I'm going to have to be an ambassador. I'm going to have to work for the United Nations. I was like, I don't want to be a bureaucrat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know what I could, what, what to do with what I had in my hands. When I stumble into Compassion, uh, that little storefront said Compassion International. I'm like, geez, you're a little storefront. That's a little arrogant, isn't it? <laughs> and I asked him, so what, what do you do? I walked in. I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. Literally walked in the door, just like I did the pharmacy. I said, what's all this? You know, what do you do? And they said this. The first thing they said caught my eye. They said, you know, our enemy is poverty. That's what we fight. And I thought, you know what? I know all about that. I, do, I now know that that's what destroyed my childhood. If poverty and I were, you know, two little boys fighting on the playground and the teacher jumped in and said, hey, who started this? I could honestly say, he did. Mm. Broke my heart when I was a little boy. Mm. All I'm doing with the rest of my life is fighting back. Mm. And when I asked them, so what do you do about poverty? They said, well, it's a very complicated thing, but what we do is we take little children and their families in their little local church, and we link them up with people on this side in America that have a heart to care, and we bring these two worlds together. And I'm like, good Lord, that's exactly what I know needs to happen. And so 43 years ago, I threw my hat in that ring, 
and have simply built it to be as big as I could possibly uh, make it and as good and as profound as I could possibly make it. And in that context, my leadership uh, came to fruition. Without that purpose, without that so clear calling of what I was to do with my life, I think I probably would have been a pretty mediocre leader. Everything I had seen about leadership to that point when I joined Compassion, I, uh, I, I pretty much rejected. I'd spent four years in the Army. I watched horrible examples of leadership. Everything about leadership had to do with how many stripes are on your arm here. And I had to drop and do push-ups and this and that for very unworthy leaders uh, because they outranked me. And I remember thinking all through my four years in the Army, um, you know what, if I ever lead anything, I am not leading it like this. This is lazy leadership. It's unworthy leadership. Rejected it. Uh, went, on to, uh, went on to Moody, then I went on to Biola, went on, got a master's at uh, Wheaton, uh, my doctorate at Michigan State. Uh, had to take courses in leadership. Uh, I rejected just about everything I was taught in the classroom. <laughs> And now they've let you back into classrooms. And now, to now I'm teaching. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm teaching up at Colorado Christian University up, uh, up there. They just gave me a big old fat leadership award last week. And I'm like, goodness, they're, they're honoring me for leading. And I could only have led in a very narrowly defined context. The stuff I was studying was, was horrible. You got to realize this was uh, in, the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The original material on leadership uh, was about character and values. Mm. By the time we got to this phase, which was when I was learning about leadership, we'd pretty well given up on that. We were now basically teaching people not how to be a leader, but how to act as if you are mm. a leader. So I was, we were reading textbooks like management techniques of Attila the Hun. <laughs> um, <laughs> What they don't teach you in Harvard Business School, um, dress for success. I mean, it was a whole range of, don't lead, but act as if you are leading. And maybe eventually, you know, if you fake it long enough, you, you become that. And I watched this and I did the case studies that they offered and I just rejected what they were saying. I thought, you know what, if this is leadership, I don't have the heart, I don't, it doesn't match my faith, it doesn't match anything about me. I mean, we were learning stuff like this. How to lay out your office. If you don't know this, you should know this. It'll really advance you. You should always have the window behind your desk. So when people are meeting with you, you can see them clear as day, but they have to really strain to see you with a light behind you. This is wow. an actual technique. Uh, I learned, um, have, you know, big mistake here, uh, have the highest seat in the room. Elevate your desk chair over the top of your guest desk chairs. So they are always looking up to you and you can look down to them. It will give you dominance. And the advice was, if you're in a committee, get to the meeting early, lift up the chair so you're talking down to wow. everyone around you. I mean, this is what I was being taught. Mm. I, I learned that the taller you are, the better your likelihood of leadership is. The lower your voice, the better the likely it is. This dress for success was crazy talk. 
but what they, what they taught you, I mean, every, every executive needs a blood red tie. And you wear that when you need clout. I remember when I became Compassion's president, one of my board members gave me a blood red tie and said, you're gonna need this sometimes. And I, it hung in my closet for 43 years. I'm like, no, I'm never using that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, you know, men are wearing suits. They advise women. The more like a man you can look, the better you are. So here's where the pants suit came from. Uh, and women were being taught how to, you know, wear platform shoes and how to lower their voices. And I just absolutely rejected all of it. I would write their case studies with what I thought was the right way for it to be done in the kingdom of God. I got C minus on everything. <laughs> in my major, I was getting straight A's, but in all of the leadership management stuff, I was getting straight C's and D's. And so I left graduate school and I went off to Haiti with my, with my Land Rover, delighted that leadership had nothing to do with me. <laughs> Until I got into Compassion's program and uh, was was, was called on to, uh, to help make it as good as it could possibly be. It was fraught with problems at the program side uh, when I first joined it. I won't even get into that, but there was a lot that needed to be fixed in what we were doing in children's lives. And I finally learned the only way I can help this ministry be as good as it can be is, Dad Gummit, I've got to lead. And I don't want to lead in order to climb through the ranks because I know that I don't want to be at the top of the pyramid. Uh, but I need leadership to help other people think differently, feel differently, behave differently in order for the ministry that I've given my life to to be as good as it can possibly be. Mm. So here's something I have learned about leadership. Leadership should find you. You shouldn't go looking for leadership. To pursue leadership for the sake of leadership disqualifies you uh, to be a, a world-class leader. Leadership should find you because you care more about the mission, more about the cause than anybody around you. There's, there's two kinds of power available uh, to leaders. One of them is prescribed authority. It's the power that says, I'll tell you why we're going to do this, because I said so. It's the power that makes you let that, make that guy do 50 push-ups. Uh, it is lazy power. It's the power that comes with the position. I'm the boss, I'm the head of this thing, and so you've got to do what I say. There's another kind of power, not prescribed, but ascribed. And that is the power that is given to the leader by those who agree to follow her, those who agree to follow him. And that you have to earn every day. It can take years to build up that kind of loyalty, that kind of respect. You can lose it in a single conversation. But those are the two powers available to, to any leader that I've watched. Um, now, one of them sounds good, and one of them sounds bad. Truth be known, they're both necessary a bit. I learned after all those years at Leading and Compassion that about 95% of the time, you've got to use ascribed power. They say leadership is a gift, and they're often saying, well, it's it's charisma, it's intellect, it's communication skills. Uh, that's what the gift of leadership is. And I'm like, no, those are characteristics often of a leader. The gift of leadership is the gift that's given to the leader by those who agree to follow them. Mm. So what I've learned is if you have a whole bunch of social equity, if you have a whole bunch of ascribed power, 
every once in a while, you've got to remind people that you are, in fact, in charge. And so you've got to do something prescribed. I used to at Compassion, once a year, I would just do something that I could send a message around the world that said, here's what we're going to do from now on. And you know why? Because I said so. <laughs> it didn't have to be something huge and strategic. And you can't do it too often or you will lose this credibility. But what it said to those who had given me their loyalty is Wes is in charge. And he cares about this place as much or more than any of us. And he will never let it do the wrong thing. Thing. Mm. He will step in and stop mm. what he perceives to be mistakes. Mm. Can you tell us about Rwanda? That is one of those moments I think about where you are talking about ascribed and prescribed. Tell us about that moment. Well, it was 1994 that the genocide uh, happened. Um, I was a brand new president. I've now made it clear I never aspired uh, to lead. Leadership found me. Uh, so here I am in September of 93. I'm made president. The board is a little hesitant because they know that I'm a, a fairly nice guy and their feeling was, will he make the hard decisions or will he always take, you know, the nice road? And I knew that they were worried about that even though they had you know, entrusted the whole ministry to me. So I'm barely three, four months into uh, my presidency when the Rwanda genocide occurs. We've got 10,000 children in Rwanda. Um, organizations are just bailing out. Our government did not respond. The United Nations did not respond. And other organizations who had been active, they were all getting out. And it looked like good uh, financial responsibility uh, to get out of that mayhem. How dare you uh, stay involved in, in that craziness? You can't assure your sponsors that anything good is going on. Uh, you're taking their money, but you're not doing what you promised you would do with it because of the chaos of the massacre. And it fell to me to decide by Monday, this was Friday, whether Compassion stays in Rwanda or we get out like everybody else. And I knew, I knew from all my case studies, I knew the right answer. The right answer for my anxious board was to say, you know what, we can't guarantee how we're using the money in there. Uh, we can't keep taking money from sponsors in the midst of this chaos. I recommend, like everybody else, we pull out. I knew that was the right answer. And they would say, wow, he did the hard thing, didn't he? But I fasted and prayed all weekend, and I could get no peace about that. And so with knowing that it was probably the end of my, my leadership, my presidency anyway, uh, I said, you know what, I don't think it's right that we leave. Uh, I think what we've got to do is stay in there. If ever we were needed, it's now. And I think we need to stay in there. We just need to change what we're doing. And I think our sponsors, if we tell them, they will understand that. We can't do the ongoing child development, which takes time and consistency. But what we're going to do for this chaos is we're going to do child rescue. We've got kids who are hiding in the brush, uh, having watched their parents get massacred. We've got kids who are newly orphaned, thousands of them. Uh, this is not the time. So what we're going to do for the first time ever, we're going to put compassion over the top of the churches where we minister a sign. So these little kids who have been being ministered to that little place can find it and say, I know that they love me in there. I know that I'm safe in there. Yeah. 
I wrote to all of the sponsors and I said, I know that we told you that it's long-term discipleship and development. We can't do that in this country. Uh, I'm suggesting that we change what we do. Would you, I can't promise you that the money will be well spent, uh, but I feel it's the right thing to do. Would you stay faithful with us while we try to do this very, very difficult thing? And uh, so, yeah, we, we changed the program. Uh, we had thousands of children who were, were orphaned. Uh, within 18 months, we had them all placed, either found their extended family or placed into Christian homes. Uh, we were given two orphanages by the government to run because we were the only nonprofit in the place. 1,800 children in each of them, hugely traumatized children. I can't even tell you what these kids had seen. Some of them sat and just stared at the ground for like three months. They couldn't talk. We finally got them to draw mm. pictures and to do dramas and sing songs. Within 18 months, we disbanded both of those orphanages. They were expected to be long-term orphanages. Mm. We disbanded them because we got every one of those kids placed into a caring, loving home. And when all was said and done, we then got back to the sponsors and said, you know what, we've, we, we've established normalcy and we're going forward. Thank you for not giving up on us and leading us. And it was a case where I had every reason to suspect that my instincts were wrong uh, and I knew the right answer career-wise, uh, but, I, but I, I, I followed uh, what I felt like God l led my heart on. Now it's been 25 years, and these kids are now grown, and it is one of the greatest joys ever, uh, you know, watching them graduate from university. I mean, hundreds of them coming out of university. And uh, as, they, as they tell their testimony, they remember as two and three and four year olds the sound of the machete chopping into their mama. They remember the taste of the dust when they fell on the ground and played dead. And I remember I went to the first leadership. These are our university kids. I went to the first graduation, 150 of them graduating. And um, uh, I, was, I sat there and I was just rejoicing that I had done the right thing. They gathered for a group photo in, the, in, a, in a little ballroom of the, of the hotel next. And uh, I was talking to a bunch of donors, so I didn't see what was going on. But they finally said, would you come and join the picture? And I rounded this corner, and here were 150 university students all in their graduation grounds. And in front was a seat left open, apparently, for me. And I thought, cool, I could have gotten this so wrong. Everything that I'm seeing here happened because we happened to get that one right, and we got that right only because we dug deep into our hearts for what should be right. Mm. So leadership can be really lonely, and if you hold it too tightly, you can lose it. And anyone leading a ministry has got to walk so closely with the Lord that the Lord can whisper in their ear something that makes no sense whatsoever to anyone else. Uh, but you are the leader and you're responsible for that. And uh, that was, you know, one of, one of a bunch of them uh, of leadership decisions I had to make standing all alone. That's great, man. I'm, this, I'm so glad you did subpar in the, your leadership classes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad you were a C minus and rejected that. If I'd have been straight A's, I don't know what I'd have done we, in this crazy. Yeah, world. so we were talking about healthy leadership. Yeah. And I think the context was Wes, there's not many leaders finishing well. Yeah. And 
And he says, actually, let me tell you a story. <laughs> so why don't you tell us the story? I, I'll tell you this. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a true story that happened with me uh, back when I was still in college. I was at uh, Biola University. I was taking communications classes. So I was a disc jockey radio announcer up in uh, Glendale from, uh, from La Mirada radio uh, outfit. And um, so I drove from La Mirada, where Biola's campus was, up to that radio station, uh, probably a 45-minute drive every day. Um, I was the new guy at that station, so uh, I didn't have the same shift. You know, sometimes I had, you know, the morning shift, sometimes the afternoon, sometimes the evening, sometimes uh, the, the graveyard in the middle of the night. Uh, I took whatever assignment they gave me. But I drove the same road, and it was off of the highways. Uh, along that drive that I took every day, uh, there were oil derricks on the top of these hills out there. If you've been to California, you see these are oil pumps. They look like grasshoppers out there, and they're, they're always going up and down. And there were many of them. But there was one couple hundred yards off the road where I was driving, about five miles from my house. And... Um, uh, it became kind of a, a landmark for me, and I would always wonder, I wonder if it's pumping now. And I would, I would look out there, and sure enough, there it would be pumping. And sometimes it was pumping against the rising sun, pumping, pumping. Sometimes in the shimmering heat of noon, it, I'd look, it was pumping. Sometimes at the sunset, sometimes in the dead of night against the Los Angeles nightlight, uh, I could see it pumping, and it, it became a landmark and a bit of a friend. I was always like, I wonder if it's not pumping today. And uh, so one time I was out jogging. When I was young, I used to do that. And, uh, and uh, I, I got a little far from home this time, and I thought, well, I'm going to head back. Uh, but I think I'll run to the top of that grassy knoll right there first. I'll look around and try to get my bearings. I wasn't sure where I was for sure. And, uh, and then, I'll, then I'll head back. So I got about halfway up that hill, and uh, here I am out in the middle of nowhere. There's no houses, there's no nothing. It's just grass. And I hear this incredible squealing and howling and grinding sound. And I thought, what on earth is going on out here? And it sounded like it was coming from the top of the hill. So I, I thought, I'm going to run to the top of that. And I run to the top of the hill, and there I suddenly realize where I am. I'm on the hill of my buddy, the oil derrick. And, uh, and it's the oil derrick that is putting out all this howling and squealing noise. And I ran up to the, there was a chain link fence around it. And I ran up and I was catching my breath. And I was watching this thing going up and down and it was howling and squealing. And I was like, wow, I wish somebody would like oil this thing. And, uh, and I looked and there was a gate, but it had a rusty padlock. Nobody had been out there forever. And I was feeling bad about this friend of mine howling and squealing. And suddenly I realized, this is really wrong. This thing is working night and day, all the time, 24-7. And all it's doing is producing oil. And what we use oil for is to keep machinery from squealing and howling. This is so horribly wrong. And as I hung on there and thinking back to, to, to leadership, I thought, this is probably how it is. Uh, they are out there. They are working hard. They are fighting hard. They're, they're producing oil so other machines don't squeal and howl, but they need exactly what they're giving away. But the problem is mm -hmm. nobody can oil them because they've got a chain link fence around them and they've got a rusty padlock on them. 
And my heart just broke for leaders. And as I've, as I've grown up now into leadership, I realize that is so often the case. It is lonely. This is what I was saying. I guess that's how my mind went. Uh, I was so lonely in that decision about Rwanda because I knew what everybody else expected. And that is often the case in leadership. It's lonely. You don't have the right uh, to explain everything to everybody. So you have to live with ambiguity. People are like, I thought you were compassionate, you know? And, and you can't say, well, I had to do this because of this, because of this. If you knew, mm. you would know that it was the right thing to do, mm. but you can't, you can't do, uh, express that. And so leaders operate in isolation, uh, giving away, giving away, giving away, getting, uh, and needing exactly what they uh, what they uh, are giving to others. And this is one of the reasons why it's a long haul and it's exhausting. And, and, and there are you know, many defeats and a lot of hardship. And that is one of the reasons why so many times leaders don't finish well. They, they simply burn out. I maintain that if you're leading something without passion, but you used to have passion for it, you had better either refine the passion or get out of the way because you're, you're, you're taking the place of somebody who could lead that with passion. Yep. And so to get all the way to the end, uh, you know, full speed and strong and healthy, uh, you, are, you are fighting against all odds. Success and succession are back to back in the dictionary about as close as any two words you can find in the dictionary, but they are worlds apart in the real world. And I maintain there is no success uh, without succession. And so many, many leaders get to the end. They've run out of gas. I used to run track, and I know that the race is not over at the tape. If you think that the mile run ends when the tape goes across somebody's chest, your chest, you're going to lose. You've got to run full speed through the tape. You've got to run with a, mind, with a mindset of 10 yards beyond the finish line. Because if you think it's at that tape, you are going to slow down as you get to there, and you're going to get passed up. That's why there's photo finish. You got passed up at the tape because you thought that's where the end was. So here I am. Six years beyond retirement, I passed that tape a long time ago, and I'm still running, still engaged. And we can talk about succession if you want, but it takes, it takes, uh, it takes great leadership coming in, and it takes a pretty remarkable leader going out. And the biggest mistake, well, it's not even a mistake, the biggest evil that can destroy that is pride. The outgoing one wanting to be missed the outgoing one wanting people to say, boy, wasn't it great when Wes was in charge? <laughs> uh, the incoming one uh, eager to say, you know, now it's my turn. So get out of the way, old man. It's my turn. <laughs> and that is what happens almost all the time. <laughs> and pride, I believe, is Satan's favorite tool uh, for destroying, destroying lives. So I don't know in your life if this chain link fence uh, is, is, is something you're actually feeling and experiencing. But this is one of the reasons why when Alan says, Wes, will you come and talk to leaders? I'm, I'm happy to do it because I know how real 
that is. Mm. And you're not going to get out of it uh, by reading books and taking classes. Uh, probably the best way to figure out how to, how to live inside that chain link fence is to actually talk to leaders uh, who have been there, who may be a little older or a little further down the road. Mm. So I, I never say no to Alan. Uh, because I know how critically this is. If, if, if we didn't do this sort of thing ourselves, it may not happen, and you may not discover, uh, you know, for 20 more years that you've never had the full joy of leadership because you were trapped inside that mm. chain link fence. Mm. You didn't have anyone that you let get close, and nobody could get past the uh, mm. padlock. Mm. And so you've lived a lonely, uh, even with success, it can be very lonely. Mm. Uh, and I don't think leadership should be anything but incredibly fulfilling and joyful if you are understanding the sizzle of what you're leading. Mm. And for me, like I say, God had to make it real clear <laughs> what I was uh, to do with my life. So long.